Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your Bible in hand, let's open it to uh, Romans chapter 6. We're about halfway in our journey on the Roman road. This morning we're gonna look at a sermon entitled Slaves of Righteousness. These are six key uh, passages in the book of Romans that are very helpful in sharing the gospel. And I hope that each of you do share the good news that Jesus died for sinners in your particular sphere of influence. Because as believers, we are to be a preserving agent in the culture in much the same way Jesus said, as salt is a preserving agent from decay and rottenness, we're also to be a light in a dark world. This is a dark world. We're not lighting of ourselves, but we reflect the light of the Lord Jesus and we hold him high. But we need to remember something. We can't save anyone. We simply tell people the truth of one who can save, and that is the Lord. Now, when we study the book of Romans, verse by verse, we find that the Apostle Paul's arguments, and by the way, the entire book is really one great argument of the doctrine of justification by faith. But the argument falls into several sections. You remember that the first section we dealt with was bad news, chapters one through three, that man is a sinner and all men individually are sinners. And because of that, we stand under the judgment of a righteous judge our creator, and that's bad news because all of us have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, and fallen short of the glory of God. The further good news is that man does not get better and better all the time, he gets worse and worse all the time, and ultimately God's wrath will be revealed on the day of judgment. The good news begins in chapter three where Paul lays out God's plan to save a people unto himself. That plan, of course, is to justify them through the substitutionary atoning death of his own dear son. And the section of scripture on justification by faith goes through chapter five. And as we saw last week, that section informs us of the many wonderful implications of the doctrine of justification. Remember how we we saw it? Paul says, there's this blessing, and not only that, there's this blessing, and not only that, there's this blessing. And beginning in chapter six, which is our text this morning, Continuing through chapter 8, the Apostle Paul describes the everyday life of someone who has been justified. That is, here's how your life will be transformed if you're truly born again. The Bible in many places describes what happens when a person becomes a Christian. And it uses a number of everyday analogies. For example, the blind receive their sight. The dead are made alive. An enemy has been drawn near and now called a friend. We talk about being born again as a baby is born. And here in chapter nine, Paul uses an analogy from life, life all around him in ancient Rome, and that is the institution of slavery, specifically the analogy of a slave that's been set free. Now, the institution of slavery goes back thousands of years in human history. In fact, our own nation was nearly torn asunder because of it. But in the Old Testament, you remember that Joseph in the book of Genesis was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And eventually the entire Hebrew nation was enslaved by Pharaoh down in Egypt. But here in our text today, Paul's purpose is not to argue 
the morality or immorality of the institution of slavery. He's just acknowledging its existence in his culture and he's using it as a teaching device. And we're told by historians at the time of Paul's writing of this letter, slaves made up about 40% of the population of Italy. And so those who read these words originally were certainly related. So let's uh, read now, Romans 6, beginning in verse 15 through verse 23. Paul writes, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you now are ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. And what we find in those verses that I just read is called a teaching device called the two ways. The Bible in both New and Old Testaments lays out two distinctive ways or paths or lives. One is pleasing to the Lord, the other is displeasing. One way leads to life and one way leads to death. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Psalm chapter one, David lays out two examples of human beings. One he calls the righteous, the other he calls the wicked. Jesus talks about two men. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus talked about two gates. One is wide that leads to a broad path. The other is small that leads to a narrow path. Galatians chapter six, Paul gives us the law of sowing and reaping. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he shall surely reap. So for if a man sows to the flesh, he will reap destruction. If he sows to the spirit, everlasting life. You see, in all these examples, one leads to life and one leads to death. And by the way, all those examples that I just gave were a very common and easily understood contrast. And Paul uses yet another here in chapter six, that is of freedom and slavery. And what he's teaching is that every person is slave to some master. The question before us today that we need to answer before you leave here is whose slave are you? We said, now pastor, slavery is long gone from our cultural context and I'm certainly no one's slave. In fact, as a Christian, you may say, I've been set free by the blood of Jesus, and that's right. If you're saved, you have been redeemed. That's a great, wonderful Christian word. To redeem means to purchase out of slavery and set free. You were slave to sin and you were bought by the death of Christ and set free from sin's penalty and power. But you and I were not saved, we were not redeemed, we were not set free to once again be ensnared and enslaved by sin's power. 
We were set free for the purpose of serving Christ. This is Paul's point. Not only does justification give us peace with God, remember we saw last Sunday, not only that, it also gives us an introduction to our sovereign Lord who invites us now to come with boldness into his presence. Not only that, he fills us with the hope of glory. That is, that this life is a pilgrimage. We're passing through to our true home, which is in heaven, which allows us, Paul says, to not only endure tribulations and trials, but to exult. That is, to have great joy in the midst of those. It reveals our character as we pass through the trials. It strengthens us as tempered steel And that ultimately leads to one great solid assurance of our salvation. But because Paul taught that a person could have assurance of salvation, he was sometimes accused of something called antinomianism. Antinomianism means literally against the law. The idea that some read into Paul's doctrine of justification by faith through grace alone is that if a person could know that they were once and for all forgiven, then that person would likely just sin up a storm, right? Knowing that they couldn't lose their salvation. And so Paul in chapter six answers that accusation beginning in verse one. Look at it, verse one, chapter six. Paul says, what shall we say then? That is to your accusation. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now here's the theory that they were operating under. Nod your head if you agree with me. Paul taught that salvation is a free gift of God. That is, it's by grace through faith, right? He sure did. And would you agree with me that grace is a good thing when we receive it? Absolutely. And so the theory goes, well, if grace is good and we get grace by sinning and being forgiven, doesn't it make sin that we should sin more and more so we can get more and more grace? That was the theory. Paul's answer is in verse two. May it never be. That's a Greek phrase, meganoita, that is the strongest way you can say no in the Greek. There was a headline this week in the paper about a U.S. senator who voted no on a particular vote this week. And when it came up for a revote, he changed his vote from no to a much stronger form of no. That is what the word is here. The strongest no. Not just no, but heaven's no. That's not what the senator said, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely not. Perish the thought. Don't even entertain that. So, so Paul is denying this accusation, and he explains himself through verse uh, 14. Now, what he, he's saying here is that we won't, if we're truly born again, go back to being enslaved to sin because now we have been united to Christ. We call that the mystical union. Remember that on the cross, our sins were transferred to Jesus and his righteousness imputed to our account. But that's not the end of it. Not only that, now when Jesus was buried, we were buried with Christ. When he was resurrected, we've been resurrected with Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians, we've even been raised up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we are one with Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are what? in Christ, are united with Christ. And so that's a wonderful truth. And so Paul says, look, it's not just that we were set free to roam around aimlessly only to stumble back into prison again. 
No, we've been set free and united with Jesus. And now we can rightfully say that we are slaves of Christ. Now then, there are three things that I want us to see from today's outline. Just three quick points about slavery. Number one, it's past. Now in the past, every person who's born again was a slave to sin. That includes... I hate to tell you, the oldest and strongest, most mature believer in this room, whomever that may be, and the brand new Christian in this room. All of us in the past, before we were saved, before we were justified, before we were redeemed, were slaves to sin. That is, we inherited from Adam and Eve a sin nature and therefore sin's curse. When you go to Sunday school this morning, adults, and I hope that you will, you're going to find a little supplemental lesson about Genesis chapter 3 that reminds us of why the world is in the shape that it's in. That God created a perfect environment. He made one prohibition. Adam and Eve broke the prohibition and therefore they were cursed. Not only Adam and Eve personally, but all of us who were descendants of Adam. We share in the guilt of Adam. Now I know some people object to that, that we share the guilt of Adam. But it's clear in Romans chapter 5. But even if you do object to that, fear not. Romans 3.23 says, you're guilty as Adam was. For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, have you ever noticed though that sin, once it started, doesn't tend to stay in neutral? It tends to go downhill very rapidly, right? Person who starts off with a little white lie, it, it ends up in a big lie and multiplied lies. Have you ever been uh, at a party and... Uh, Let's say there's 15 people there, the little party game where someone starts off and they just make a simpler declarative sentence. I went to the store today. And the person next to them is to change one word, a phrase in that sentence. And by the time it makes its way all the way back to the, to the room, it's something that had nothing to do with the person originally said, right? That's kind of way with sin. Starts off, you think, oh, this is not too bad, just a, a two degrees off center here. But by the time it goes out over time and makes its way back, it's something that it never intended to be. That, that's why Paul says, look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. He's using slavery instead of deep spiritual terminology because they can relate to that for your uh, fleshly. For just as you presented your members as slaves, your members, by the way, is just your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Once we start down that path of sin, it leads to worse and worse Sin. Let me give you an example. I mentioned Psalm 1 earlier. Let me read part of it to you now. Psalm 1, verse 1. David writes, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Jehovah, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of waters that bringeth forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatsoever he does, he prospers. Now that is the life of of, he says, a righteous man. Someone who's walking closely to the Lord. He's meditating in the word of God. He's praying. He's fellowshipping with other believers. He says that person is to be contrasted with the wicked man. He said the wicked man's life is noted for three things. First of all, he walks in the counsel of the wicked. Then he stands in the way of sinners. And then he sits in the seat of the scoffer. That is the negative progression, if we can call it that, of sin. It's not an upward spiral, it's a downward spiral. And so you start off and you're just kind of interested in what the wicked are doing. They kind of get your attention. 
Next thing you know it, you're standing in the middle of their huddle. Over time, though, you become one of them, and by the end of your life, you're a ringleader. Don't you tell your kids that's the way it goes in school? If you're not a leader, you're going to be a follower, and the next thing you know, you're a leader going in the wrong direction. Well, the Bible verifies that as, as the truth. But Paul says the opposite is, opposite is true of the righteous. His life is marked by a closeness to the Word of God. He says he's like a tree that runs his roots down deep, and he's going to prosper, that is spiritually, and he's going to bring forth spiritual fruit. But in the past, we couldn't do that because we were prisoners of our own sinful nature, but we've been set free. That leads us to our second point. And uh, that is the present. Look at the second part of verse 19b there. I, I said, when you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, it resulted in further lawlessness, comma. So now, he's talking about the present, now that you've been saved, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So the point is, just as it is the natural progression for a lost person to go from one level of sin to the next level of sin, all the way to the worst forms of sin. And by the way, all you got to do is go visit our prison system and you'll know that's the truth. Most prisons are divided into different units. And depending upon the severity and your history of crime is what unit you're in. And the worst unit, of course, is solitary confinement in death row. And I've toured those places and met with some of those men. And I can tell you, I've never met anyone in the worst part of the prison that started out there. They started out doing petty crime. And it was a negative progression till it was something they never dreamed it would be. Paul says that is the natural progression of sin from bad to worse. But then he turns that upside down. He says, now that you're saved, the natural progression of your life is righteousness to righteousness. That is, we don't have the same set of expectations, I hope, for someone who was saved yesterday as for someone who's been walking with the Lord for 30 years, right? In fact, we call someone who was saved yesterday a baby Christian. And if you're a good parent, you don't have great and high expectations for your two-day-old baby. Now, when that baby's 21, you need to have some higher expectations for them, right? And so it is in the church. And so Paul says, just as when you were a slave to sin, your life went from lawlessness to more lawlessness, so now in the present, you're the slave to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Sanctification is the process of maturation where we grow over a lifetime more and more into the image of Jesus. Now, some of you may object to being called a slave of Christ. Paul didn't. Paul was not a slave in the legal sense. In fact, he had Roman citizenship. In fact, he could move freely in a number of circles. He knew the Roman law and he had freedom to do that. It was very valuable. But he also could move in Jewish circles because he said of himself he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the law forwards and backwards. And there was a time in his life where he was into titles and pedigrees. But after Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus and he saw his sin for how sinful it really was and he saw how holy Jesus is, we never again see Paul appealing to his pedigree. In fact, most of the time, Paul refers to himself as a doulos in the Greek, which is another word for a very lowly slave. 
In fact, you may know that one of my favorite passages in all the Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. Remember the context of 1 Corinthians is that that church, the Corinthian church, had all sorts of internal problems, most of which hinged upon the fact that they had divided into factions in the church based around who different people thought were the greatest preachers. Remember, some says, I'm of Apollos. That was a young man who was a great preacher. Others said, I'm of Paul or I'm of Cephas. When Paul heard that, he said, good gracious, did any of us die for you? We need to be of the party of Jesus, right? And not some preacher. And Paul says, in fact, if you want to think of us, think of us in two ways. And he throws out two terms. First of all, he says, think of us as stewards of the mysteries of Christ. A steward is a manager who manages property belonging to another. And so when a preacher gets before you, or your Sunday school teacher, and they open the word of God, they have the responsibility of rightly dividing it, which means teaching it correctly from a position of being well prepared. But when they do that, it's okay to thank them for being a good steward, but ultimately they're not the one to thank for the word, right? They're simply the messenger bringing the word of God. So Paul called himself a steward of the mysteries of Christ. The second word he used is doulos. He thought of himself as a slave, a very low slave in the service of Christ. And that was not some false humility. That was a good thing for Paul because a, a, a doulos is someone who was incredibly loyal to his master. Now, we are to think of ourselves as set free from sin. Look at verse 11. He says, after he's argued that we are one with Christ through the, the, the mysterious union, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we do every time we baptize someone here. We remind them that you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. When they go into the water, what do we say? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in new life. And so, in the King James, it says, reckon yourselves which tells me that the editors of the King James Bible were from Southern England. <laughs> but it's an accounting term. In the legal sense, we are dead, aren't we? Because we're dead with Christ. We're also in the legal sense, resurrected with Christ, even though we haven't in reality experienced that yet. And one day Paul says, we'll be raised with Christ. And so, what a wonderful truth that is. But Paul thought of himself as one who was united with Christ, slaves to Jesus. Now, that is our present. Finally, thirdly, we see our future. Look at verse 23. Here's the verse we've been asking you to memorize. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that verse is most often quoted out of context and is often preached out of context. Preachers just like to cut and paste that verse and preach it by itself, which is uh, okay, except uh, that's not the best way to teach because you don't understand what came before it. And I just explained to you what came before it, right? The fact that Paul is laying before us two ways. One leads to life and one leads to death. I've explained how those two ways are seen throughout the Bible. Whether it's a rock or sand, whether it's a small gate or a big gate, whether it's life or death, those are the two ways. 
Now Paul lays out one more of, of those two ways. Verse 23, the wages and the gift. Now you know that wages are something that has been earned. If you have a job and you contractually agree with your employer to do a certain task, if you complete that task, you expect your wages, right? To get what you deserve. What have we earned and deserved as sinners? God's just wrath. That's one of the questions in the children's catechism we use at our house. This past week I had a chance to visit with one of my pastor friends here in the area, Dr. Tom Pennington over at Countryside Bible Church. And every time I read this verse, I think of a conversation he and I had years ago when he was uh, the associate pastor, John MacArthur out in California. He said they were living out in Los Angeles and uh, they had three young girls at the time and they were teaching them this catechism. And the catechism question is, what do your sins justly deserve? And the answer is the just wrath of God. And so the mom, Tom's wife, was buying groceries for the family with her three daughters and they were misbehaving. Finally, they made it to the checkout stand and you know what the grocers do. They, they put the candy at eye level to a child, right? Right as you're trying to check out. And, and so the youngest daughter started saying, mommy, mommy, buy me some candy. And the mommy, as a gracious Christian mother said, honey, you have been misbehaving all day. You don't deserve any candy. She said, you're right, mommy. I deserve the righteous judgment of God. <laughs> Can you imagine what the clerk in Southern California thought, thought about that? But that's right. That is good theology from a little girl in the grocery store. The wages of sin, what we have deserved, is death, the wrath and the judgment of God. But, don't you love that comma there? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve, by the way. Ask him for mercy. Ask him for grace. And he's a very present help in time of trouble. He's free and willing to give it. And so uh, that, that's our future. Our future is eternal life. It's an eternal home with uh, Jesus in heaven. Now, I want to finish on this. You remember those two gates that I mentioned that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7? One is a wide gate that leads to a broad path. Really, that, that's similar to saying a, a, an on-ramp to a super eight-lane superhighway. It's a smooth road. And people think, well, I want to get on that road. And a lot of people are on that road. And he contrasts that, he says, with this other way that is entered to by a small gate. And I get the picture there of a turnstile. You have to come one at a time. You can't come in groups. And once you're through the gate, then the rest of your life is your path. And it's a narrow road. And the implication is it's a hard road and a difficult way to, to follow. Now, what's most important that a road is smooth and easy to travel or it gets you to your destination? Well, it gets you to your destination, right? I remember in 2003, my wife and I, uh, 2004 rather, we purchased our first home over in Crawford Farms uh, off of Golden Triangle here just west of town. You guys remember what Golden Triangle Road used to be like? It's horrible. Potholes, it was two lanes, it was just horrible. And our dear real estate agent, she may be here today, 
She said, well, they tell me that this road will be four-laned in a year. She didn't just, she didn't tell me which year that would be. <laughs> but in a year, it was. It happened to be 10 years later. But now we have this beautiful four-lane road until they started tearing it up again. If you've been out that way. But for a while, we had a wonderful, clear path to my office. Just so nice. But you know, that 10-year period where I was driving down the bumpy road, the narrow path, I never once thought, you know, 35 out here is smooth. Let me go jump on it. Because if I jumped on it, it would be a smooth ride, but it would either take me to Denton or Fort Worth, not where I needed to go. So I got on the bad road, the, the narrow road, because I knew it would take me right to church where I needed to be. Well, dear friends, that's what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't promise that if you start out with him, it's going to be easy. In fact, he promises the opposite. So if you follow him, you have to take up your cross. It's going to be a difficult and a winding and a narrow road. And by the way, not everybody's going to be on it. In fact, there's going to be times when you're lonely because there's few that be that find it. But here's what he promises. If you'll get on that road and you'll stay on that road, you'll end in heaven. Now the opposite is true. It's very inviting to go through that big on-ramp onto the eight-lane superhighway where all your friends are running eight abreast, 90 miles an hour. But the problem with that road is it leads in hell, leads to hell. Here's the further problem as it relates to evangelism. There's not a sign on that road that says you're on your way to hell. All the signs indicate you're on your way to heaven. Think about your friends and your family members. They don't believe they're on their way to hell. They think they're on their way to heaven. You ask them. They'll say, when you, when you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? Well, I hope I do. I think I will. Based on what? Well, I'm a pretty good guy, you know. Do my best, try to be a good dad and husband. All the signs are telling them they're on the right road, but they're not. And so if you know they're not on the right road, what should you do? Well, what should you do if, let's say, you live beside a, a real highway and a storm comes up and washes out the bridge and it's a 30 foot drop to certain death below. And you know that you have friends and family who are driving 70 miles an hour down that road to come visit you and you know if they keep coming at that pace, they're going to go off the bridge into the water and die. What would you do? I expect you, like me, to get every flashlight and lantern you could find. You'd stand in the middle of the road and start waving down traffic, right? That's what evangelism is. We can't save anyone. We're the messenger. We warn them of what lies ahead if they don't get off that road and get on the right one. And it's up to the Lord to convict them of the truth of that and to turn them around. But, but we can do all we can do, can't we? We can pray for them. We can warn them. We can tell them the truth. And look, some people are just not going to believe it. They'll say, get out of the road. That's not true. I'm on the right road. The bridge is not out ahead. But some will hear you. They'll believe you. They'll turn and be saved. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. You're going to hear a lot about Spurgeon in the next three Sunday school lessons, but here's what Spurgeon said about evangelism. Quote, If sinners be damned, and they are, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go to hell unwarned are unprayed for, end quote. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. You lay it out so clearly. There's two paths. One leads to hell and one to heaven. One to life, one to death. Father, thank you that by your Spirit, you opened our blind eyes, those of us that are saved, and you showed us our own spiritual condition. You called us out by your Spirit and gave us life. You granted us repentance and faith, and then you granted us eternal life. Now, Father, our task is to share that good news message with all those that we come in contact with. Help us to do that with boldness and with clarity, realizing that we plant in water, but it's up to you to give the increase. But Father, help us to do our part to the Great Commission. And Father, then the result of that we leave to you and give you thanks and glory for it in advance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.